Hello and welcome to another episode of Cam's Cops Our Stories. A warning at the start of this podcast that it features content some may consider only suitable for adults. Today we're going to be joined by DC Kev Foxcroft from the Child Abuse Investigation and Safeguarding Unit. We're going to be discussing the case of Anthony Byrne, a serial paedophile who was jailed for life in July 2021 to serve a minimum of 20 years. We're also going to hear from one of the victims who has bravely agreed to share her story. Perhaps we could start today by telling us a bit about the Anthony Byrne case and his offending. Okay, yeah, I mean, Byrne, um, I'll refer to him by surname, it's all he deserves, quite honestly. Um, he was a, a sexual predator. He offended for the best part of 40 years um, against young children. We're talking, you know, rapes of, of young children of, of primary school age secondary school age and in the case of one of his victims this went on to adulthood he's manipulative he was a predator or is a predator he's he would get involved with families friend people you know he'd identify vulnerabilities in the families and i think that's one one of the things that was very clear from the offset in the investigation that um the people he was targeting all had vulnerabilities within their family dynamic in one way or another whether that was you know poor parenting or whether or not there was uh, financial issues within families whether there was social issues within the families, he was exceptionally good at identifying those weaknesses. And that's what he targeted, you know. He would get in with the families, he would, he would befriend the parents, he would uh, be that great neighbour next door, he'd be that, you know, uh, lovely stepdad, he'd buy presents, he'd do things. In the case of one family, big family that was um, obviously, you know, not affluent in, in themselves, they wanted to do some work on a house. They couldn't afford it, you know, who could? Um, you know, it's not no money in the in the pot, as it were. They got to know him because he was a name that came up and he came round and offered a quote. Being burned, he said, oh, don't worry about that. I can I can sort you out. You know, I can do that for you really cheap and, and, and all the rest of it will get it sorted. You can help me to the, to the father. You can help me do this and you learn. And everything about him was, was this amazing bloke that had just come to help the family. So we did all this. Um, and then he stepped away from this particular family. Um, and this family I'm talking about is one of the Cambridgeshire victims. Until about, I think it was about 12, 18 months later, when the family wanted some more work doing on the house. Of course, who did they go to? That awesome fella who gave him a very good quote. And again, he says, right, there's lots to do. But don't worry about the money. We'll sort that out. And that's when it started. He would help you know, pay for uh, materials. They did this an extension. They did all that. And all the while, while this was all going on, he was getting friendly with the children. He would buy them presents. They would go to his house. The parents had nothing but trust in him because, let's face it, he, he was everything. That, you know, he seemed like a great bloke. Well, that's what he is. He's a manipulative, evil individual. That's, that's from day one, that was, his, you know, that was his intention. Sadly for the, the young girl of the, the family, she got Vern's attention, and it wasn't long after that that he started sexually assaulting her um, at, his, at his house. He would rape her. You know, she was, she was about six, seven, eight years old. This went on. This went on about five years. You know, totally oblivious on the family's point. You know, no fault of their own. He was a family friend. The little girl, what should, could she say to people? You know, she was worried she wouldn't be believed. Um, she had older siblings, you know, burn. You know, at a time they'd all go around, all these kids would go around together. And as the kids got older and became teenagers and sort of like got in his way of things, um, he started to, to sort of stick the, the knife in, as it were, by making up things about them and, and saying about the behaviour and, and all this. And, and eventually he drove a wedge between the younger girl and her older siblings to the point where they'd stop going on and seeing him. She continued to go because obviously that's the odd, you know, it's a bit like, that. yeah, go around and see him and stuff like that. And this is what was happening. Of course, it came to the age when she was 12 years old, and then in February this year, she, she finally plucked up the courage. Um, and I don't think, you know, that can't be underestimated, you know, under, overstated even, um, to tell her mum about what was going on. And it was, it was like a hammer blow, wasn't it? You know, mum didn't know what to do. She was absolutely gobsmacked and all of this. But the important thing is she believed it all. And that's, that's the thing, you know, that, that gave us the in, as it were, because as a result of that, she phoned the police. 
and that's when we, we became aware of it. But, you know, that was one victim. There was other victims in Cambridgeshire that we know about that, that came forward as a result of this 12-year-old girl having the courage. And obviously, before he moved to Peter Huntingdon in the mid-90s, he lived in Newcastle. That's where he comes from. And all the while, from very much when he turned an adult, he was offending against young girls. And that went on and went unnoticed because, again, he got involved with families. He was a friendly neighbour next door. He manipulated parents. He identified where the weaknesses were. And that's what he did. And unfortunately, because, you know, his manner, he was very aggressive in his manner. Um, he would make comments to them about, you know, he's done this to people, he's threatening people. And it, it, it put the fear of God in them. They're not going to say anything. You know, these people come from, from families that, that have got their own issues. You know, so they were too scared to say anything. They worried what he'd do to them, what he'd do to their families. And as a result, this went on and on and on and on. In February this year, like I say, this 12-year-old girl told her mum, mum phoned the police. So as is, as is normal policy, um, uniformed officers went out in the first instance. And I have to say at this point, um, the two officers that went out, I uh, forget the names now, were absolutely fantastic. And I, and I think that's that needs to be mentioned in this because... Quite often, a lot of the uniform do get a bit of criticism nowadays, especially, you know, with the workload that's going on, the calls for service and that. These two officers took the time out to make sure that they engage with the victim. You know, I've, I've seen the body-worn video of, of that initial engagement, and it was a horrendous situation for them both to, to be put in. They've got the victim there on, on the sofa with mum. Mum is just completely in disbelief, and yet the officers engaged appropriately, and they got the information. They got enough information to identify what was going on. Got through to their skipper, you know, and, and they they took some good saw some good advice at the right time. Who then obviously it then comes through casing, you know, our, our unit. So as a result, of that initial contact and building that trust, and from the moment the coppers walked in the door, we, we had a start for ten. So that that was that, and, and that's so that's how it came to light in, in Cambridgeshire. So the you know the the game was up. But at that point for him, because obviously this had been discussed in our department. When the job came in, I remember that. It was a whole team effort. We had an interview to my colleague and myself. We did the interviews once he was arrested. Um, there was other members of our department. We interviewed teams for the victims. They went out quick sharp um, and got some fast-moving fast ABA achieving best evidence video interviews from our 12-year-old victim. Um, the other girl that we found was a potential victim. She was engaged with by officers. And she made disclosures of offences as well of a similar nature and, and was, was, was supportive knowing that the other girl was, had come forward. She felt that now was the time you know, to step up, if you like. So there was lots of stuff going on that initial 24 hours. We had him in custody. I think the thing that, that, that stood out that day was when we started doing all that work, we had him in custody, we had the children safeguarded and we started making plans around you know, what we needed to do next. It, it comes as a bit of a surprise when we did the background checks on him to find out that he was actually on court bail for a significant number, I mean, five victims, offences in, in Northumbria. And the day that we were interviewing him, so he was interviewed, uh, sorry, he was arrested the, the previous evening when this came out. Following day when we, we took the job on, he was due in Newcastle Crown Court for a hearing. Obviously, he didn't attend that one because we were having a little chat with him, uh, which went down well, I'm sure. We got hold of the OIC up north, um, DC Heggingbottom. Um, Dave got talking to him. Obviously, there was a lot going on in the background now. So we're now we've got this guy that we've got for two offences, uh, two victims down in Cambridgeshire. We now know that he's got a number of victims up in, in Newcastle that he was um, he was on bail for. We find out that the hearing due that day was for him to to formally put a plea into two other victims who had come forward later up north. So it was quite a, an intense 24 hours that. Obviously, with what had gone on, we didn't want him out. On conversation with the, the, the officer from, from Northumbria, he, um, he informed us that uh, during the interview stages previous with him, um, he'd gone no comment. So we were sort of expecting that, me and my colleague, uh, DC Mefter, we were expecting a, a no comment interview because of the nature of the offences. And I, mean, I think with him, because the nature of were non-recent offences up north, it was it was worth a shot to him. He, he, I imagine he thought, um, you know, these these I'm from like the early eighties right up to the mid nineties, no forensics, nothing like that, uh, just witness testimony from the victims and, and other people. So he thought it's worth a shot, isn't it? So that's where we were sort of geared to. So we did a, a really you know, in depth in, interview plan with him, um, expecting to no know comment, but lots of questions. 
And then what threw us completely initially um, was when we sat down to interview and we asked him the questions, did you, did you do this, did you do that? He started making admissions, which you expect the unexpected in interviews, I would suggest. But I don't think either of me or my colleague were expecting that. And that completely threw us. And I think it threw his solicitor as well who was dialing in because all of a sudden his solicitor's on the phone going, right, I need to stop, I need to stop, I need to stop, I need to chat to my client. Okay, that's fine by us. So we, we leave and then we come in. Uh, come back in and he says, I've been told to go, no comment. So we're back to back on what we expected now. But we were, I think rubbing our hands together is, is, is not the right term, I don't suppose, but it's like we were surprised that we've got these, these admissions now, so we've got something. So we came away from that. Obviously, we did, we did work through. We worked quite late that, that night, but luckily, CPS decision-making was good. Uh, we got a, a remand demanding custody, which was obviously then supported by her the following day at court. So that was the initial initial sort of carnage of the office that day. And it was, and I have to say, it was an all-hands-to-the-pump all job. It was. I mean, we've got several small teams within our department, um, and everybody just moved in, you know, and, it, and it's great. And that's, that's the one thing I love about working in Casey because, you know, we don't have the, you know, the resources of some of the bigger teams. It's a case of jobs in, you're in, you just crack on with it. And I think because it's child protection, because it's, you know, what you're dealing with, everybody knows that. You don't go into child protection, you know, just because you think it's, it's not, it's not like, you know, firefighting, job, 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 job. Um, you go in there because you do want to make a difference. So it's really positive in there. When you get a good job, you know, like that, a really, really big job, there's no issue, there's no complaint, there's no moaning. It's just like that. Let's crack on, let's get, let's get him. Remanded and let's let's get these kids safeguarded, and that's that's basically the day. That's the first day. And, and what was it like dealing with Burn? Was he kind of how you expected? Maybe before you were in this kind of role, what, what was he like as a character to deal with? Character is quite a nice term. Very corporate. I mean, on my background before I came into this job, I was a prison officer in a high security Peterborough over at Whitemore in March, over just the other side of Huntingdon. And my first five years in that role as a prison officer, was actually working on, we call them vulnerable prisoners, basically sex offenders and, and people of the like. And because it's a maximum security prison, or high security prison, should I say, you're dealing with people with significant sentences. I think the lowest uh, lowest sentence I ever dealt with in on uh, Wine Hall was, I think he had 17 years or something like that. So that sort of gives you an idea of the level of people. So I dealt with people like that every day. You know, I was under no illusion what, what paedophiles are like. Um, I've met a manner of them, some exactly like Burn, others not. But one thing that they all have in common, to a degree, one way or another, they're very manipulative. That's what they do. They're either manipulative with a controlling mechanism that they have, threatening mechanism, or the poor, poor woe is me. You know, I'm, I'm the victim, the, 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 little, you know, the, the little old guy that sits in the corner. At the end of the day, however they manage it with their personality, they're all paedophiles. So I wasn't expecting anything surprised me when I was dealing with Burton. And Dave Burton came across, he'd, there's no emotion there. He didn't, he didn't care. He, he really didn't. And, and I don't suppose he still does now. You know, that, that's him. He was, for 40 years, he got away with doing the most horrendous things to these children. And, you know, not just in this country, such was a level of trust he built with families. He took the girls, some of the girls, to, 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 you know, to, to America. Disney World and places like that. Such was the trust and work he did on those families. And he offended over there when he took them on holiday. You know? He didn't he didn't care about anyone but himself, what he wanted, what he was getting. And it's just like that. I know I can't swear in this this interview, but if there's just no humanity in him at all. Absolute base individual. I I, I I know we've said before, and I know you manipulate evil and human and stuff like that, but he's just an emotionless predator. He doesn't care two hoots about anybody other than Anthony Byrne. And that was very clear. And when, when we interviewed him, you know, he was, he was compliant, he was cooperative, he was quiet, he was sat there. There was no emotion. Until the point when we started challenging him a little bit with some of the questions, and they weren't oppressive, but he was not allowed to do that. But we challenged him on, on the reasons why. And all of a sudden, we were, very, we were faced with this guy where all of a sudden he felt like he was the victim. And I'm like, I'm not having that. No, no, that's not happening. You're here because you're the suspect. And you've already made admissions. You're far from the victim. 
I'm asking you reasonable questions. But as soon as he was challenged, knowing that he couldn't intimidate and threaten me and my colleagues, because he had no control over us, he didn't like it. And that's him all over, you know. He has this control over people, whether it's a parent with a drink problem that he can manipulate, whether it's poor financial that he can manipulate, whether he's just someone who's not the personality to, to stand up to him like the children weren't. Because at the end of the day, they're crying out loud, they're children. You know, these nine-year-old girls should be playing with dolls and things like that. They, they shouldn't be being sexually abused in, in his home and being so fearful of him that they're too scared to tell their parents. Yeah, that's why I won't refer to him as a human, because he's, to me, he's not. That person is not human. That, that's an individual that just happens to breathe the same oxygen the rest of us does. Yeah, I mean, you've kind of spoken about this a bit already, but how do offenders like Byrne operate? How do they operate and, and do what they do? It's, it's about control. Now, society says, I mean, we all know, don't we? Society says what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Now, I wasn't, you know, my upbringing wasn't, wasn't about if it weren't for, for my, you know, my mum and, and other family members, you know, we, we were brought up on a, on a council estate up north. You know, we didn't have a lot, and there was always people that were there to help and all the rest of it, and, and you were always glad of that help. And I think that's, that's what people like him do. And, and, and like I say, I've touched on it before, you know, he gets in, he sees a weakness in the armour of the, the family, whether it's a one per, a, you know, a single parent family that maybe there's issues there, so there's a bit of a fractious relationship between the parent and the child. Um, and he can be that friendly neighbour that's both there for the parent, but, oh, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll basically, he gets on, oh, uh, oh, don't, you know, go easy on your mum, I'll get, I'll, I'll get you a nice lolly or whatever. Um, so he builds that trust with the child. He's our great friend. He also, parent sees that. Now, if you've got a parent that's struggling a little bit, she sees that as a, you know, or he, it's a solution to a problem, isn't it? So before you know it, you know, this, this, this doesn't just happen overnight. This is built up and built up and built up. And eventually it's the, I need to go, would you mind looking after such and such or something like that? And it's great and it works. And that's it. That's the door in there. Because after that, it's not long after that he starts. In the case of another victim down here, uh, by her own admission, bless her, she was a single parent. She had, you know, she had a drink problem. She, she, she readily admitted that. And he worked as a barman at a local club. He saw... This lady saw that she had a dog, she would come in with her, saw the situation that this lady was in, and targeted her. Before you know it, doing exactly the same again, he forms a relationship with this woman, ready access to the child, straight away. Who's going to believe that? And then again, the victim, like I've already spoken about, you know, the, the family that just, you know, to do their best to do right by their children, to bring them up. And I have to say, having worked with, with all the families, the one family, you know, the particular family that stands out is, you know, they are a very, very decent family. Socially, they're just, you know, whenever I went there to do victim work with them, it, it was a pleasure to, to go and speak to these people. And it, and it was quite difficult to step back when I did it, if I'm honest. But it, such was a family. They, they look after their, their kids and do the best by them, but without a lot of money. And when someone comes and says, oh, I'll do this work for you, and then, but then he did what he did, manipulated. He was ready. He was playing a long game. He stepped away for 12, 18 months, knowing that there was a conversation that was had at the time when they did these little bit of renovations that, oh, I wouldn't mind when I've got a bit more money. I want to do some more. Oh, well, yeah, give us a shout, mate. It'll be all, you know. And uh, that's exactly what happened. By which time, he was this great bloke who was done a good job, got in with the kids, got in there, bang. And before you know it, he's got the kids doing jobs for him, paying them. And like I've already said, once the kids got too old and he wanted to target the younger one, he drove a wedge between them. Free game, fair on. And off he went. And that family, bless them, absolutely devastated when this all came out because, you know, they would. They blame themselves. Why didn't we see this? Why didn't she talk to them? It, it was awful for them. They're not to blame. They didn't choose any of this. There's only one person responsible, and that's Byrne. He, he played longer. He'd been out of this game for about 40 years before we managed to nail him. Or people come forward. And can you begin to explain how difficult it must be for the victims in this type of case to come forward? And kind of related question, really, do you think lots of abuse like this goes unreported? I don't think, if I'm, if I'm totally honest, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it must be for the victims. And I'm not just saying this because it's the, you know, it's the, the line that should be used. I've been in this role now for coming up four years. And... Uh, I, I genuinely don't know um, how difficult it must be. I've never been in that situation. I can't begin to imagine 
the, the conflict in the victim's head that's going on, you know, because with people like Byrne, they, they destroy everything they believe in. They, anything that they feel they can go to, that trust, who could I go to to keep me safe, to make me safe? He destroys it all. He absolutely destroys it all. So what's left? Their first view, I would think, is no one's going to believe me. Now everybody says, you know, you know, well, why didn't why didn't they report it sooner? You don't know what's going on in their lives. You don't know what threats have been made. You don't know what the family background is, what the social dynamics are. So it's easy to sit back from the outside looking in and be judgmental. And there's a lot of judgmental people in the world today, sadly. These victims, there's no time frame on it as to when they can come forward. We have victims that come forward the next day, the same day. We have victims that come forward the next month, the next year. I had to do an interview, uh, well, it must be nearly a couple of years ago now, 35 years before a victim was ready to come forward. We worked with her. The guy was sent to prison for five, five and a half years at the age of 91. So victims have so much trauma to go through, so much conflict. And for me to sort of say how difficult it will be, how, how difficult it is for them to, to come forward, I think it'd be really disrespectful in a way because that's not for me to say a victim will come forward when the victim's ready to come forward. But I think what's important is, despite what you might read in the media nowadays, uh, which is, it seems that with social media coming online and things like that, it's a free-for-all to criticise. There's a lot of desktop warriors that quite happily sit behind a keyboard all day and have an opinion on everything and aren't very helpful. And, you know, and being a police officer these days, it's, it's probably the hardest time to be a police officer because, you know, when you, you're not at work, you're looking at your newsreel on your, on your phone, there's somebody that's, you know, having a pop at the police. Sometimes it's justified. I'm not going to go into all that, but sometimes it is justified. But we're not nowhere near that we all are some of the people that, that get through. The problem is these victims who've already got enough trauma going on in their lives see that as their first thing. Where's the trust in that? You know, they should be able to come to the police and trust that we're going to help them. And what I would say to any victim, however old you are, is we, you know, we are their help. Believe it. Don't believe anything you read like that. You need to come forward. But when you're ready to come forward, you know, we will help. We will support. We will talk to you. We will believe you. That's the important thing. You, you know, you will be believed. We there's, there's lots of avenues that we can do put in support. And you know, sometimes a victim will come forward. We will have those conversations and then they'll think, I thought I was ready. I'm not. Fine. We're not going to push anybody into doing anything they don't want to do if they're not ready for it. But by coming forward, what we can do is we can get it all recorded on our note, you know, on our records. Even if they don't feel like doing an interview at that point in time, we can get stuff recorded so we've got a record. We can also, with other agencies, which I'll talk about in a little while, put in longer term support that's independent of the police as well. They're not alone. That's, I think, the important thing to do. But that hardest thing for them to do is take that first step. Uh, and that's a really important thing. And, I, and if you were to ask me, you know, should you come forward? Absolutely come forward. Talk to us. And we'll have a, you know, a proper conversation about it. It'll all be around the victim's wishes. You know, but it is, it, it, it is, I can't even describe how difficult it must be for him. I've not been in that situation. And, and given that and how you've described that, what do you think of the victims in this case and the fact that they, they did come forward and have, have done what they've done? At the most vulnerable time of their life, they've said things in front of their parents that they, no child should ever have to say in front of the parent. God's sake, no, no adult should have to say. Never mind a child that's, you know, pre-puberty or, you know, not even in a secondary school or, or reach the age of consent. They shouldn't be having these discussions. So for them to draw the courage from, from within to actually do that, and then to have someone like me walk through the door. Now, I don't know what people's perception of a, are of a, a child protection officer is, but I doubt it's an 18-stone, bold-headed, tattooed northerner. Okay? So for Gru to walk in the door, or Shrek, or whatever, and that's how I saw again, it seems to work with them too. It breaks the ice. For them to engage like that and to, to, to trust me to do the right thing by them, you know, that they're just, it, it just goes beyond respect. It's just, they're, they're, they're just, you know, if, if my, my, my daughter can grow up with half the strength of character and courage that these girls have got, I'll be one very proud dad, I'll be honest. And you mentioned a bit before about the kind of support services and other things that are available. Can you just expand a, yeah. a bit about that? 
in the case of this job with Burn, I mean, from the, from the start, we we obviously we had the SARC who, who assisted with holistic medicals because while the while the offences were all non recent, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that these girls weren't didn't have you know issues as a result of being being sexually abused. So we were able to sort out holistic medicals. The SARC at Hinchinbrook Hospital are fantastic. I mean, can't speak highly enough of them, um, and they do that initial. Medical, the support is fantastic there, and they will signpost the victims, the survivors, whatever you want to call them, um, to other agencies. But we also have children's social care. They were there from day one. We, you know, we put the referrals in on day one. Uh, Section 47 joint visits were agreed, so we went out and speak to children, both social care and police, you know, to see, right, what can social care do? What support can they put in place? And, you know, they have, they have other, other things and, and avenues that, uh, that aren't open to us. So that's... I think it's important, and I want that definitely want you know that, that social care you know do a lot of good work as well, and then they should be should be you know, recommended recommended for that. Um, but more than that, and, and certainly more than the police side of it, I want to mention the the Peterborough Rape Crisis Centre and also the Cambridge Rape Crisis Centre, and uh, they call them ISVAs if they're for adults and CHISVAs if they're for children, and it's basically an independent sexual violence key work. What happens with them is when we have something like this come up. You know, we put in a refer. We speak to the victim first because he may not want it. You know, it's all about consent at the end of the day and what the victim wants. And we offer them that support for them to be talked, spoken to, or contacted by by a chisfer, um, who will introduce themselves, explain what what they can do, what they can offer. And you know, it's independent of the police. That's that's the beauty of it. And this is how I always say it. You know, it's completely independent of what we do as police. What you discuss with them is confidential. You know, with the exception that if there's concerns around harm to anyone, then obviously then they're duty-bound and that, that breaks any sort of confidentiality sort of thing, if someone's going to come to harm as a result of what, what they're told. But they, they will basically do home visits, they will build up a rapport with the victim if they wish to wish to engage with them, they will arrange the sorts of counselling support or the, the support you know that's completely independent of us. And what that does for us, because when you're doing an investigation like this, you know, you can become very focused on getting the evidence and obviously while we're doing this job you know you've got other investigations as well so it's nice to have that support because before you might get questions from the victim that you may not be able to answer chances are chisbers can and like i say they can talk about what's going on they'll you know the victim can talk freely without thinking i'm writing this down or i need to take a statement from you or things like that they can have those conversations knowing that it's in a confidential setting and that and, the, and, the, and like I say, the, the, the combined rape crisis centres in Cambridgeshire are phenomenal. You know, we have a fantastic working relationship with, with them. And, you know, they, they will work with the, with the victims long, long after sort of I've walked away and stepped back. And in this case, you know, I know the, 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 the gist for Amelia, she's brilliant. She's, she's still working. I was speaking to her yesterday. I've stepped away. We, you know, from the families about a month or so after, after the sentencing hearing. And we we agreed this was the cutoff. Made sure everything was in place. Speak to Amelia yesterday about another unrelated matter, and she's still talking about involved with these girls still. So even though I've gone, Chisfers are still there, and and that's another thing for the victims. They can there's someone out there that is specifically there to talk to them, to support them, to believe them that isn't a police officer as well. And that I want that you know that's really important because I don't think they get the. The, the, the kudos that the, 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 like the police and, and other professional agencies get. So I think that's really important that they get that acknowledgement. Definitely. And in terms of this particular case, I mean, how did it feel when you knew that, that Bernard pleaded guilty and then uh, eventually got the 20-year sentence? How did, how did that feel? Um, when I found out he, he was going to plead guilty, I think the word is buzzing. Absolutely buzzing. But it was mindful that I... Um, I had to manage the victims as well because all I wanted to do was tell them and say, oh, you know, because all I could think of was we weren't going to have these young girls put through the, 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 the Crown Court process. I mean, we have special measures in place for them and then we would, they would never have had to face that evil in court as such, but, you know, there'd have been video links and things like that and, and whatnot. Um, and the fact that, and I don't even think, it was his last remaining shred of decency in his body that made him plead guilty. I think it was more to do with the fact that if he pleaded guilty, you know, he was going to get a lesser, you know, a tariff or whatever. And I think it was, again, it was all about him, what was best for him. So I'm under no illusion that 
that he was doing it as one last last decent thing because there's no decency in his body. But knowing that those girls weren't going to have to go through a court process, I was, I was buzzing for days, mate. I, I know that night I didn't sleep a wink. I was just up when I was, this is, this is great news. But until I kept it quiet because what I didn't want to do, because of the way he operates, he can change mine right up until the day of the court hearing. So we left it until I knew damn well that he had pleaded. That was a good day. Good day in the office, that was. Yeah. Buzzing. And what about the sentence? I think it was 15 years initially and then extended to, to 20. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll just correct you on that. It's actually, oh. he got sentenced to life imprisonment. So he's got a life sentence, all right? So what he got was the tariffs. So the way it works, and I'm not a judge because obviously I don't earn enough money, but when you're going to get sentenced to life imprisonment, when the option's on the table, and we had an inkling because I'd seen some hearing schedules that had been sent down to me from previous hearings that the judge had been made aware of a certain piece of legislation. Do not ask me what it is, not Scooby. Drawing his attention to this piece of legislation. Now, when someone's going to get sentenced to life, a judge has to tell them that if he wasn't going to give them life, this is what he will get. And the judge told him on the day of the sentencing, he would have given him 30 years. So the way the legislation works, the judge would give half of that as a tariff. So that's the starting point. So he gave him, he said, he'd given him a life sentence, but he said, had you not been going to look for life, um, I would have given you 30 years anyway. So that means I have to set a tariff, and that can't be lower than half of what my original determinate sentence would have been. Hence the tariff of 15 years. Being ex-prison officer, like I say, I mean, some people thought, oh, that's not very much. And, and, and there was a little bit of that conversation going on. But as I explained to one of my victim's mothers who was with me from Livelink from Huntingdon at the time, Afterwards, I said, no, I said, trust me, when I say this, I said, you've got to look at how old he is now. I said, you've got to look at the fact that he, he's got, got to do 15 years before he can even apply for parole, you know, before he even got to think about that. So that chucks him into his 70s. And that's, of course, if he gets out, you know, he's, so it's not a given. And from my experience at Whitemore, very few, I, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head in five years of working with these, these individuals, one that got out on, on that tariff, that first tariff date. So that, that's that. So his life sentence. But then it was literally, um, I can't remember, I think it, was about, it wasn't long after, it was maybe a couple of weeks later. So I went, on, I went on annual leave, literally the day after the sentencing. I went on very happy and I come back to find out there'd been another hearing. And just an email from CPS up north. There'd been another hearing and um, he'd had his tariff increased to 20 years. So I'm like that. That's the sort of email you want to come back from leave to, to be fair. And... Um, I'm scratching my head as to what this was about. And, and from what I understand, that the law recently changed in regards to sentencing around those types of offences. And whereas, and I think it's only coming in the last year or so, from what I understand, and, and basically they're not allowed now to, to give half. It has to be two-thirds minimum. So that's why he got a 20 years. So now, even better, he's got 20 years before he can even think about coming out, which takes him to nearly eight. So, yeah, again... That was, a, that was a cracking bit of news to share with the victims. So, yeah, that was good result. One of the victims has bravely agreed to speak to us. We've used an actor's voice in this clip to protect her identity. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, perhaps we could start with what it means to you to know that Anthony Byrne has now been convicted and jailed. It's made a big difference for me in the way I think. What I hadn't noticed before is that I was always looking over my shoulder thinking that I might bump into him or he might come back and get me somehow. So, knowing that he has been put away now and he can't hurt me again means an awful lot. Also, the fact he's been put away means people have heard what I and others had to say and they've believed us, which makes a massive difference. You spend so long thinking nobody is going to believe you, so knowing that he's been put away makes me feel so much safer. I wasn't making it up. It's not something I just invented in my head. It happened and people believe us. What did it feel like after the court process, knowing they had been convicted and that received such a long sentence? How did that initially feel? It's just a massive relief. It's like a huge weight has been lifted off my back and I don't think I realised how much I was carrying. It's just a huge relief. It was a good feeling knowing he'd got a sentence that he deserves. It was a good sentence, not just a slap on the wrist. If we can just um, perhaps go back a little bit, what, what impact did what happened have on your life? It completely took over and ruined my life. 
it ruined my childhood. I have no good memories of my childhood. I'm sure I had good experiences, but everything has been overshadowed by that and I can't get past it. When I look back, that's all I see and it just took over my whole life. That whole period of life seems like a waste of time. What happened shouldn't have happened and it seems like those years were wasted. When I look back, it seems like nothing good came out of that period. I have no good memories from a large chunk of my life. That time when you're actually meant to be developing and learning life skills and making good memories. Other people can look back and reminisce. You know, if you're sat around talking, this is what I did as a child. This is what I did in college. This is what I did as a teenager. But I can't do that because when we have those types of conversations, immediately my first thought is to shrink inside myself and think I can't talk about that period of my life. So I'll either avoid or change the conversation. As a result of what happened, I didn't have friends. I'm not close to family. I don't have any friends that I was friends with in school because I didn't get close to anyone. It was only afterwards that I was able to make friends and get connections. I basically didn't have a life during that period. That was the impact. So what's life like for you now? Life couldn't be any more different. Going from a non-existent life, in fear, terrified all the time thinking that you're not worth anything, that everything is your fault and that no one will love you, to now having lots of friends and I do have someone who loves me. I have a husband. I have a good life now. I have things that I enjoy doing. I know that those people love me and care about me and would never hurt me. I don't have to be in fear anymore. Even more so now he's been convicted. What would you say to an adult who's experienced abuse as a child but perhaps hasn't come forward yet? All I can say is it was one of the best things I've ever done. I probably wouldn't have said that a year and a half ago and even when I was going through the process. It is genuinely one of the hardest things I've ever done because you're having to relive everything and go through everything. I'm not going to lie, it is very hard but the result at the end is absolutely worth it to get your life back. You try and box it away. There were years where I didn't tell anybody what had happened. You try and pack it away and think, I'll just forget about it. But it never goes away and you always have the shadow in the back of your mind. You've always got problems associated with it. Once it's out and you've had that release, even that first conversation with a police officer just to get it out in the open and then say, okay, I believe you. It's just a huge weight off. You've been bottling it up for so long so to have that release, having someone else carry the burden, which is what the officers did in my case, they really helped me along with that. It's massive. You may probably find there are other victims if you come forward, and that will help. We know it's hard to prove things, but if you have more people, that does help, and it's got to start with someone. Like I say, it's honestly one of the best things I've ever done, just to get your side of the story out and for someone to believe you. And what signs do you think parents and carers should be looking out for? That's a really good question, but also a really difficult one to answer because everyone is different. Some people might act out, some people might go into themselves. Firstly, is there a change in the person? Is there a change in that child? Were they normally happy and loud and now they're much quieter? Or did they used to be quiet and now they're acting up? I'd say it's more important to have a really good relationship with the child where they're happy to come and talk to you. Don't have any subject off the table. A problem I think we generally have in society is that subjects like child abuse or sexual abuse are such taboo subjects that nobody wants to talk about them. For example, if there's something on telly, say 24 hours in police custody, and it's about a certain topic, some people say they don't want to watch it because it's too upsetting. If the message we're giving out is that we can't talk about that because it's such an upsetting subject, then the child is not going to want to discuss it because they don't want to upset anyone. So I think it's just about making conversations more open and allowing them to talk to you about anything and not having any topic off the table. Thank you so much. I think it's such an important point being able to have those conversations and to be open with children. Uh, thank you so much again for joining us today. It's been so powerful to speak to you and we really hope that this podcast and hearing from people such as yourself will encourage other victims of crime to come forward and seek help. So uh, thank you very much. You're welcome.
Moving on to your, your role specifically then, can you tell us a bit more about what that entails? Yeah, so, so in the Child Abuse Investigation Unit, um, our role is predominantly safeguarding. It's about protecting people. I think that when you first come into the role of child protection, because it's not a role I, I'd ever considered, you know, a lot of the roles within the police are about basically getting the, getting the bad guys in, getting them locked up, dealing with them, getting everything happy days. In child protection, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a different track you take. And um, it takes a little bit of getting used to, don't get me wrong, because it's not necessarily about that. Priority overrides everything is safeguarding and protecting vulnerable kids and, and, and adults, because we deal with adults for non-reason offences. We deal with an absolute spectrum of offences. We, so you've got this job, which I would suggest is on the higher end of it, and then to, to the basically down to the other end of it, where you've got parents who have had an argument with the, with, with the child, lost the temper and, and smacked them, Charles reported that, and then so we deal with that as well. And sort of like we, so we've got an, an, an everything in between. One of the other parts of the role we do, we, we do a lot of partnership work, and we work a hell of a lot with, with you know, children's social care. We get referrals coming from, from schools, colleges, from healthcare settings, and, and other, other sort of professional agencies, uh, volunteer organisations, NSPCC, people ring them, then it'll come through to us. So we work hand in hand with, with social care. We'll go out on what they call Section 47 joint visits, um, which is where a social worker and a, and a child protection officer will go out to, to an address to the school, whatever, speak to children about what, what it is ever that's happened and do what they call an initial contact. And we'll just ask very general questions to, to get a feel for the dynamics of what the situation is and, and try and establish if there's been any, any offences. So that's one of that. We do quite a lot of that. And a lot of our work generates from those as well. Now, it's not all about pulling people in, arresting them and, and setting bail conditions or remanding them and all the rest of it. There's a lot of out-of-court disposal nowadays because, you know, it's not a black and white world, child protection. A lot of that, especially with COVID, you know, you look at this, the sort of stuff that's going on at the moment, people stuck in houses where they wouldn't ordinarily be stuck in together, people being made redundant, people losing their jobs, people dying. It puts an immense amount of pressure on families and, and you know, social groups. So it's not always right proportionate for us to start going from peace to nuclear so we that's why we work with children's social care a lot and a lot of the time you know these families just need a bit of help so when we walk in the door and they think oh my god you know social worker police your first question normally is who are going to turn my kids off me well 99 percent of the time no but generally the times that we do do that and it is a very rare occurrence i say they already have an idea that that's what's going to happen because we just don't do it there's, there's, there's a build-up to, to this happening so there's other options open to us you know so we'll do out of court disposal will be that community remedy where they have to work with social care or they'll have to do some sort of course to address whatever the problem is there's conditional caution similar sort of thing maybe a little bit more stricter you know there's all sorts of deal things so and we can normally we can put that help in place for families and we can walk away and then leave it with social care to monitor and in the case of a conditional caution for example if the person has been issued it who's agreed to it and doesn't do it, it essentially gets ripped up and they go to court and then they can speak to the magistrate about it and take the chances. So we deal with all sorts of that. And we also do uh, initial child protection conferences. Um, again, since COVID, it's, it's all teams meeting now. But basically, when, when a child referral comes through for, you know, for whatever child protection concern there is, it'll be assessed. And then there may be, as a result of concerns raised, there may be uh, an initial child protection conference arranged. That's arranged by social care. Service level agreement is we have to provide a, a, a representative. That's normally myself or one of my colleagues or DCs in our unit. And then we'll attend. So, you know, you'll have the, the social care there, the social worker. We'll have health. We'll have education, um, any support groups that are already in place, family workers, things like that, and the police. And we all sit together or on Zoom now, as it is, with the parents or the involved parties, discuss what the concerns are, go through absolutely everything through that. And then at the end of it, a decision will be made whether or not that child or children go on a, a child protection plan, be that for you know neglect or physical, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, or whether they're a child in need, and then we can just put some sort of that early help in there, which is a lower level to the child protection plan, or whether nothing. We normally have you know one or two of them every day, Monday through Friday. So they 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 take. I mean, they can last between an hour and a half and sometimes three hours, depending on how much you're there. So that take that takes up a good, a good portion of your time. So with that, you get your social care involvement. So yeah, and then obviously on top of all that, we get our investigations as well, which come through the normal crime recording system. 
or live jobs that officers are attending, such as, as the burn job. Um, and then we investigate. So there's a whole plethora of stuff we do. And I think sometimes people don't realise that. And, you know, if you say child abuse or child protection to people that don't work in that environment and all of a sudden it's, oh, my God, I can't deal with that. What I would say to ring us up, <laughs> talk to us, you know, we, we, and we can, we can, we'll always help people, you know, because at the end of the day, if the job's coming to us, we want a decent handover. So if it, he's a five minute, 10 minute phone call, you're ne- never going to get, crit- I'll say that to officers, and you'll never get criticized for giving us a ring. And if you do, then you need to speak to someone as a supervisor because we're there to help people, you know what I mean, at the end of the day. And if you can get that initial contact, initial engagement, like we had with Byrne, those two officers from Huntingdon that went to Byrne did a blinding job, absolute blinding job. And if we can have more of that, it helps us down the line when we're having to do video interviews with children and things like that and get evidence gathering. So, yeah, so there's, there's a lot, a lot, you know, we, we don't just swan around with social workers. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a massive spectrum of what we do. And I have to say, it's probably, it's no probably about it. In my 13 years of policing, it's the best job I've ever had. It's awesome, absolutely awesome. Um, within that spectrum of, of offences you've just mentioned there, you do deal with some absolutely horrendous crimes, you know, involving children. Um, lots of people would ask, you know, how, how do you do it? How do you, how do, you do your job? I, how do I do my job? Well, those that know me, I know that we're listening to this down the line. Now and again, there's a little bit of swearing in the office. The odd rant, maybe. I call it venting. They call it ranting, whatever. But all joking aside, um, absolutely, what I will say is I couldn't do it without my wife, my daughter. Um, I'm exceptionally lucky and you know I'm not going to mention her name because that'll just embarrass her but she's a diamond you know I don't talk about my job at home really much when this Covid kicked in I don't like working at home sitting in a conservatory where my my daughter lives her home dealing with child protection having to put a paper on the door with a red cross on from the conservatory so that when she was at home she knew not to come in at that point so I, I was speaking to someone or dealing with someone on my computer and I didn't want to run it through and maybe hearing or seeing or a green cross, a green tick on the door saying, yeah, you can come through because I'm doing something, it doesn't really matter. And I, I like to keep my work life on one side of a very, very thick black line, and my home life on the other side of that. But I don't discuss stuff with her because, one, it's not appropriate anyway. Um, and also, I don't want to be sharing that, that with her. And I certainly don't want it. My nine years got here, it's like an elephant. So I don't want her hearing that. Oh, she thinks his daddy helps children. But my, but my wife, she understands that. And when I've had a a bad day or a heavy day at the office or the, the, the eight-hour shift that's turned into a 16-hour shift. There's never any criticism. She knows I'm grumpy when I'm tired. It's what happens. But she's always there, always there. And I know she's not judging me. She'll support me. And it doesn't matter, you know, if I finish at 10 in the evening or 3 in the morning, despite me telling her, go to sleep, she'll sit up and wait. What can I say? I'm a little girl, you know, I'm not a moral crusader. I, I come in, I do my job. I come in to do my job because I like my job. I enjoy my job. I get a kick out of my job because it's one of the few jobs in the world that you actually do make a difference. So a lot of people talk about making a difference, but words, anybody can talk. But I actually go in and try and make a difference. And whatever the criticisms are, you know, if my little nine-year-old girl can, I go out the door in the morning and get my hug from her and then get back at whatever time in from like after bed, not after bedtime, get my hug, you know, how was your day, Daddy? Oh, really busy. Do you want some chocolate? It's the little things like that. And if I can't go out of my door in the morning having the opportunity to keep people like her safe and others like her schoolmates safe and people like that, how the hell can I expect others to do it? That don't sit right with me. I've got the opportunity and the privilege to be able to do that. So why not, yeah? And what? Gives you satisfaction in your role in doing it. You've kind of explained a bit about that then, but, but what does give you that satisfaction within your role? I think I've just covered it, really. I think, you know, knowing that to some, not all, you know, some battles you can't win, but you do make a difference to people's lives. I mean, I, I get a real buzz out of getting the little, little emails. You know, I get a little buzz out of this job. And if you do end up listening, I mean, I got a lovely framed little print of a picture and from one of the victims of this with some lovely words on it. I'm not an emotional kind of guy, which might surprise you. Um, but I teared up. I, I'm not embarrassed to admit it. When I got that and opened that up and the card that was written with it, I, I couldn't speak. I was absolutely choking. And I came away from that thinking, you know what? I'll take that. I'll take that all day long. And, yeah, it took a bit of a while to come down after that. And I took pictures of it 
And I sent it to all my family because I was really chuffed. And I thought, you know, whatever happens now, that girl now trust trust the police. And I'm not going to because obviously we, we talk about obviously the the on you know the victim anonymity. Say the word. So I'm not going to mention any names, but this particular victim, and she'll know who she is when when she's hearing that. But she calls me Detective Gru, all right? so she'll know who she is now. She's now doing things, and she wants to, you know she wants to be a copper when she grows up as a result of her engagement with us as a force. And that's as corporate as I get. But us as a force, the experience that she's had and what we've done for her. She's now at the point where she's now thinking, this is what I want to do. And do you know what? If that and what's happened to her 10, 15 years down the line, she becomes a police officer and goes out to a job like this, she can turn what's happened to her into a... You can sit on a, on a sofa and say to a victim, I understand what you're going through. I know what you're going through. This is what we can do. That is worth more than anything. So, yeah, that's, that's that, I think. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, you, you've spoken about the fact that you're able to make a difference in your role, yeah. and thank you for making that difference. Thank yeah. you for the role that you do and your colleagues do. It's yeah, it is a it's, team. It's, it's a massive. It's not just me. There's, you know, there's when, when I think we're up to stuff. You know, obviously someone will tell me if we're not, but you know, it is a small team. You know, we've got little sub teams within the department, and they all everybody, everybody's the same. If it was if it wasn't me sitting here, it was someone else sitting here. They all, I'm hopefully probably not as blunt as me, probably, but you know, that's what we do. And what I would say to people, you know, and even if you've not considered, I'm not a recruiting self, I don't get paid for it. But if someone is, it does end up listening to this and thinks, you know what, actually, that's, that sounds like it. You know what, when there is, look, keep an out, look for vacancies, go for it, mate. I, I, I actually love it. I, I used to be on uniform and I had a bit of a reputation. The people still laugh at me now doing this role, but you know what, this, this, nothing touches its role. And I'm like, I say, lucky, and I said about support I didn't forget to mention, I'm actually lucky because my, my, my colleagues on my team, Peer support is phenomenal. Supervision and you know sometimes you know what the supervisor I've got is, is brilliant as well. So yeah, I ain't going anywhere. Not a chance. Brilliant. Thank thank you for your time today, Kev. Really appreciate it. Thank you to Kev for speaking to us today, and also a special thank you to the survivor who shared her story. If you've been affected by the content of this podcast, you can visit our website for more information or to make a report. And that's all for this episode of Cam's Cops Our Stories. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss the next instalment. Thank you for listening.